You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. This morning we are going to be continuing in Hebrews chapter 9, the letter to the Hebrews. And this is just a, a great, it's one of the greatest books in the Bible. We love to study through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. This is a book of the Bible which really highlights to us how the Old Testament and the New Testament both are about Jesus, how they find their fulfillment in Jesus, and the Old Testament points to and foreshadows Jesus, and the New Testament tells us what it means for us now that Jesus has come. And so we've been studying through this letter for several weeks, and today we come again to what is really this section, which is the heart and soul of the message of this book for us. So let's begin reading today. Our text comes from Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll begin in the middle of the chapter in verse 15. Therefore he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many and will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to spend time in your word this morning. We pray that as we do so, Lord, that it would shape us, that it would teach us, that it would direct our lives and our hearts and our minds. Lord, we ask that you would let this be a formative time for us, Lord, and that you would do a transforming work in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to imagine with me that you're walking along a busy street with a friend and you know you're standing on the sidewalk and you can picture the cars kind of zooming by you, cars and trucks and buses all zooming past you on the street while you stand there on the sidewalk. And then all of a sudden your friend says to you, let me show you how much I love you. And then your friend just runs out in traffic in the middle of the street right in front of oncoming traffic and just gets slammed by a bus and dies. How would you feel about that? You'd probably be a little bit confused. There we were having a nice conversation, and your friend decided to just show you that he loved you, apparently, by running out in the middle of traffic. That doesn't really seem to make any sense. You'd say, well, that was kind of a pointless death. What a tragic loss of life, and how was this somehow proving to me that this person loved me? How does that even work? But imagine if instead, a different scenario... You're standing there on the sidewalk, and the bus is barreling right towards you. It's veered out of its lane. It's coming right at you, and your friend jumps in front of the bus in order to rescue you at the last second, pushing you out of the way at risk to, no, not at risk, but at the cost of their own life. Then how would you feel? Well, you might say, you probably would say, truly, this person loved me. You see, today, again, like like I said before, we come to what is really the heart of the letter to the Hebrews. The writer is telling us why Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior that we need. And here's what he says. He says that Jesus saves through sacrifice. He saves us through his death. He saves us by his blood. In fact, the writer goes so far as to say in verse 22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
And it's at this point that some people kind of cringe, right? They say, you know, this is, this is the problem with Christianity. It's all this talk about sin and judgment and wrath and fire and brimstone and the blood of Jesus. These are just such negative concepts. You know, wouldn't it be better, they might say, if we could just, um, you know, not talk about these kind of things that are negative in nature and let's instead focus on the parts of the Bible that are uplifting and encouraging and affirming and, and empowering, and some have taken that approach. There are places you can walk into, churches you can walk into, where you will never hear the words sin and judgment or blood because they're just so off-putting to people today, contemporary people. But the problem is this, that if you remove those concepts from Christianity, you've removed its very heart. You see, to remove those concepts from Christianity is to take away what actually makes the gospel good news. And that's the irony. If you try to make Christianity nicer, you actually remove that which makes it beautiful. You remove blood and sin and, and, and these things to appease modern sensibilities. You actually take away what is truly encouraging and affirming and empowering about it. See, like that person who jumped in front of the bus for you, unless you understand the depth of the problem, You'll never understand the extent of God's love for you. That's why we can't do away with these concepts like blood and judgment and sin. They're at the very heart of what is overwhelmingly positive about God's love for you and the message of the gospel. And so the title of today's message is, There Must Be Blood. Now there are three things that we learn in this section by talking about the blood of Jesus. And here's what those three things are. We learn about the depth of our problem. Secondly, we learn about the extent of God's love. And thirdly, we learn about how this changes everything. So the depth of our problem, the extent of God's love, and then how this changes everything. So let's begin by talking about the depth of our problem. Now we'll come back to verses 15 through 17 in just a minute, but I want to start by looking at verse 18. Starting in verse 18, the writer points out that blood was an integral part of ancient religious practices. In, in the Jewish system specifically, the only way to purify something was through the shedding of blood. And blood represented two very important things in the ancient world. One of them was very negative and the other one was very positive. So two things, one negative and one positive. On the negative side, we'll begin with that. Blood represents death. Blood speaks of brokenness and guilt and it speaks of defilement. So let's look at that. Brokenness speaks, uh, blood speaks of brokenness. If you wake up one morning and you've got blood gushing out of your chest or out of your arm or, or into your mouth or into your eyes, it's a pretty good sign that some part of you is broken, perhaps even mortally so. And what this communicates to us is that sin kills. See, because we all have sin in us, see, we are mortally broken, Way back at the beginning of the Bible, we read the story of the very first man and very first woman, Adam and Eve, and we read that God had given them a warning. He said, hey, you know what? You're free to roam. He's given them this wonderful place to live. He says, you're free to roam, and 99.9% .9 of everything is fair game. Just go for it. Do whatever you want. Consume it. You know, enjoy it. All these things. But he said, there's one thing that I, I don't want you to touch and he said, here's why, because there's this tree, and if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. It's basically like saying, you know, here's a hundred glasses of water and one glass of antifreeze. Drink the water and don't drink the antifreeze. And they said, I don't know, 
Antifreeze is looking pretty good. Can we really trust you on this one, God? I mean, I don't know. I think we're going to drink the antifreeze. See, rather than trusting in God's character and his love for them, they chose instead to believe that God didn't really love them, that he didn't really want what was best for them. They chose to believe that good was evil and that evil was good, and as a result, they died. They didn't die in that moment exactly, or they didn't even die on that very day. But because of what they did, they introduced a foreign element into the world, an element into themselves which hadn't been there before, and that was the curse of sin, which is death. And from that time on, everything went downhill. It was as if a dark cloud, as if a poisonous fog descended on the earth and contaminated things. Not only human beings, but animals and nature as well. And as a result, we are broken people who live in a broken world. And we experience that every day, that things are not the way that they should be. That we ourselves are not even what we should be. See, blood speaks of brokenness. Blood also speaks of guilt. See, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, immediately they were filled with a sense of guilt and shame over what they had done. It says that they tried to hide themselves from God and cover up their shame. Now, up until that point, they had been naked and unashamed, but after what they did, they were filled with this incredible sense of shame, and they tried to cover up their nakedness, and it says that they made coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. Now, I was curious how big a fig leaf is. Turns out it's pretty big. I've got a photo of one here for you. But fig leaves are, are pretty large, but there's a reason why they've never really caught on in the fashion world, and that's because they're itchy and they're drafty and they don't really stand up against a strong wind very well. They're probably hard to keep on, you know, and uh, so they never really caught on. And so God, you know, having a little bit of mercy on them, he sees them in vain trying to cover up themselves with these fig leaves, and he has compassion on them, and he says, hang on a second, I'm going to prepare some proper coverings for you. And so it says that God made garments for them out of the skins of animals. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but I just like to imagine that God made them some pretty sweet leather pants. But uh, if you think about it, and you think about how this works with, with animals and stuff, there's only one way to get the skins off of the animals, and it's not by asking them politely. You actually have to kill them, right? You have to kill those animals, those furry, cute little things now had to die, not because of something that they did, but because of something that these other people did. On the one hand, Adam and Eve must have felt better because now their nakedness is covered up. They're clothed. But on the other hand, now they had one more thing to feel guilty about, didn't they? Because their actions had resulted in the death of these innocent creatures. And so if they didn't feel guilty before, they absolutely felt guilty now. And now they've got clothes on their bodies, but they've also got blood on their hands. That blood represents guilt, blood on your hands. That, did you know that phrase actually comes directly from the Bible? Isaiah 59, it says this. It says, your sins have separated you from your God and your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. And did you know that William Shakespeare, he took that same concept, that verse of the Bible, he took that concept of blood on your hands and, and guilt on your fingers and he wrote a play about it. And he illustrated it for us very vividly, this idea of blood on your hands and guilt. He illustrated it in his play, Macbeth. Now, how many of you remember 10th grade and reading Macbeth? I remember that my class read Macbeth, but I didn't. So I went back and I actually read it this past week. 
And so for those of you who don't remember it, it's a very dramatic story, and it's been used as the, as the basis for a lot of movies and, and TV series. And the story is a, is a really dramatic one, so here's, here's what it's about. It's about this Scottish lord, he's a Scottish nobleman named Macbeth, and his wife, Lady Macbeth. And one day, Macbeth is given a prophecy by a group of witches, and they tell him that someday he's going to be the king. And so he gets excited about that, and he goes home and he tells his wife, Lady Lady Macbeth about this prophecy and this just totally captivates her imagination. Wow, I might be queen one day and she becomes totally infatuated with and obsessed with this idea of becoming queen and to the point where she becomes so power hungry that she's willing to do anything it takes in order to become queen even if it means committing murder and so she pushes her husband and she kind of is this driving force behind her husband and she pushes him and pushes him and they come up with this plan of how they're going to murder the queen so they can insert themselves as king and queen and get in power. And they actually go through with it. Lady Macbeth drives her husband and, and kind of pushes him to go and murder the king in his sleep. And he does. And they get away with it. And he becomes king and she becomes queen. But of course there are some people who kind of become privy to what happened. Or, or maybe people who are threatening their power. And so what do you got to do to stay in power? You have to kill those people too. And so in the end they get what they wanted. They become king and queen. They, they rise to power. But they've got blood on their hands. And they begin to be haunted by what they've done and Lady Macbeth particularly she's racked with guilt to the point where she begins having nightmares and she begins walking the house in her sleep at night and having these visions when she's not even asleep that she has blood on her hands and she can't wash it off no matter what she does and it's a picture it's a description of that feeling of guilt when you've done something that you shouldn't have done and you can't undo it See, later on in the Bible, when Adam and Eve have children, their firstborn son, his name is Cain, and he murders his younger brother named Abel. And God says to him there in Genesis chapter 4, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God is saying, hey, even if no one else knows what you did, I know about it. You can't hide it from me, and justice must be done. Someone has to pay for what you've done. See, this idea is that our wrong actions have a price. They have a cost. There's a cost associated with our actions. And this was something that was taught very clearly and very vividly to the people through the sacrificial system, was that your actions have a cost. They have a price. When you sin, you have to do something. When you become unclean, you have to do something to make yourself right. You can't, it can't just be, you know, okay, fine. No, something has to be done. A price has to be paid. Your sins have to be atoned for. And the only way to do that is through the shedding of blood. And what would happen is they would take an innocent creature and that innocent creature's blood would be shed on your behalf. They would essentially stand in for you. They would take your place and they would die because of what you did. Again, if you didn't feel guilty before, you certainly would now. You see, you learned a very important lesson through this sacrificial system, and that is that your actions don't only affect you, they affect a lot of other people as well. If I do something wrong, it's not going to only affect me, it's going to affect my wife and my kids and a lot of other people who are around me or connected to me. There's a price that will be paid for our actions. And seeing an innocent creature die for what I did, think about how that would affect you. Think about how that would affect your mind. Wouldn't it make you think twice next time before you decided to do something. But here's the thing that I think often gets overlooked in this whole thing. 
is that animals were and still are very expensive, right? So like, think about this. Most people in those days, they didn't have bank accounts and investment accounts. And so they would keep their money in their assets. And one of the main assets that people kept was livestock. And those were liquid assets, you know, that could be traded or could be dealt with. If you had a lot of animals, that was like having a lot of money in the bank. Now, right now in Denver, they're having the National Western Stock Show. So I went on the internet and did a little research. The average price for a bull at the National Western Stock Show, if you're going to go down there, is $4,000 to $5,000. So a bull was one of the animals that was required for uh, atonement for sin, for sacrifice. So $4,000 or $5,000, somewhere in that range. Now imagine if every time you sinned, you got a bill in the mail for $4,000. Do you think that that would change the way that you think about your actions? See, one of the best ways to get a person's attention is to hit them where it hurts, right in the pocketbook. And that's what the sacrificial system did. One of the things that blood represented was that when you sin, there's a cost, there's a price that must be paid. And if you're unable to pay that price, well, then what happens? You accumulate a debt. See, blood represented guilt and debt. It also represented defilement. See, blood speaks of defilement because blood represents death. According to the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, whether that was a human animal or human or an animal body, uh, touching a dead body would defile you. And so think about this. In order for you, the only way for your sin to be atoned for was through sacrifice. In order for you to become clean, in other words, that means that it requires another person to become defiled so that you can become clean. Now just let that simmer in your mind for a little bit. The priest became defiled in order that you could be cleansed. And that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of what Jesus did for us. So blood, on the negative side, it represents death. It speaks of brokenness and guilt and defilement and the cost of sin. But on the other hand, blood represents something very positive. And so that brings us to our second point, which is the extent of God's love. See, not only did blood represent something very negative, it also represented something very positive. Blood represents life. The Bible says that life is in the blood. You can't be alive. If you don't have any blood in you, you're not going to be alive. Blood represents life. If you've ever seen a baby being born, there's a lot of blood involved. And all of us, that's how we came into the world. We came into the world through the shedding of blood. When someone sheds their blood voluntarily, it is a sacrificial act. It is a life-giving sacrificial act through which you give life to another person. Here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what true love looks like. He says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, when we talk about blood, not only does it show us the depth of our problem, it also shows us the extent of God's love. It's through the shedding of Jesus' blood that we are born again to new life spiritually. This is the most affirming, positive message in the world, that God loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. Jesus told his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. So the gospel, it both affirms that sin is really, really bad and that God's love is really, really big. See, the message of the gospel is that your sin, my sin, it's so serious that God himself had to die for you, but that he loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. And that brings us to our third and final point, which is this. 
how this changes everything. How this changes everything. This changes everything for three reasons. Number one, it changes everything because it means that you can be truly forgiven. You can be truly forgiven. Verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, there are a lot of people today who, who sense their sin, but they try to deal with it in a lot of different ways. They think that, you know, the way that God deals with sin is in various different ways. So, for example, one way that people would say that God deals with sin is by simply overlooking it, right? Just kind of... Um, Ollie Ollie oxen free type of thing, right? That all those uh, commandments and the things that he said, they were more like suggestions. And if you do them or don't do them, it doesn't really matter. But see, that, that neglects, it overlooks the fact that God is absolutely a God of love. And at the same time, he's also a God who is righteous and just. And he can't just overlook sin. He can't just say that it's no big deal. Or, or some people would say that maybe a way that sin is forgiven is through contrition right? Contrition, like as long as you feel really, really, really bad about what you did, and as long as you say you're sorry, then it's going to be okay. But I'm here to tell you that itself is not even enough. Other people tend to say, well, you know, if you live a decent life, then your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. They'll cancel out your guilt. Or they might say that, you know, forgiveness can be earned through religious observances. Others might say that, well, just the passing of time. You know, enough time goes by and it becomes water under the bridge. But what this is saying is that, no, none of those things can erase your sins. Maybe some of you heard in the news this week, there was a man in Redding, California, who walked in and turned himself in for a murder that he committed 25 years ago. This man had literally gotten away with murder. If he hadn't said anything... They would have never found him because they weren't looking for him anymore. He got away with murder. No one would have ever known. He would have just continued living his life. But he, in an interview that he did right before he was arrested, he said that the reason he was turning himself in was because he recently became a Christian. And he says that I know now that God forgives me for what I did, and I know now that the right thing to do is to turn myself in. See, in this interview, he, he talked about how for years, for 25 years, he had felt remorse, he had felt guilt and regret over what he had done, but he realized that no amount of feeling bad about what he had done, no amount of good deeds to make up for it, no amount of time could take away what he had done. He realized the only way for him to be forgiven was to turn to Jesus and receive by faith what Jesus had done for him on the cross. Because as we're told here, there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood and there's no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. He says in verse 23 that all the animal sacrifices that were part of the Jewish system, they were pictures and foreshadowings of Jesus and what Jesus would do when Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a substitutionary death. And it says in verse 24, I love this, it says that Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus went and stood before God on your behalf. He took your place before the judgment seat of God so that you could be forgiven completely. In verses 25 and 26, it says that in the former system, if you sinned, then you had to make a sacrifice. And then you were good, of course, until you sinned again, which was hopefully not too soon after, but probably within, I don't know, half an hour. So there you go, then you get another bill in the mail, and then you've got to make another sacrifice, and then another sacrifice, and that would tide you over until the next time you sinned. Again, another half an hour, and then you're just incurring this incredible debt that there's no way you will ever be able to pay. You can imagine it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, right? You're just going to have to keep changing that thing out. It's not going to be fixing the problem at all. It'll just be absorbing a little bit of the blood, but not healing the wound. Jesus' sacrifice, though, is different. 
Jesus' sacrifice gets to the root. It heals the problem. He is the perfect sacrifice. Verse 26 says, He appeared once and for all to put away sin forever by sacrificing himself. Verse 27 says this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sin of many. That tells us two very important things. First of all, it tells us that Jesus died to make the final and ultimate sacrifice. That's why he declared, it is finished. And that what that means for you is that every wrong deed, past, present, and future, he already paid for them all. If you sin next week, he doesn't need to be crucified again. He's already paid the price for that sin too, once and for all. But this verse tells us something else that's really important, that you've only got one life to live. Do you know that? The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. And it also, on a, on a very somber and sobering note, it doesn't teach a second chance after you've died. It says very plainly here, it is appointed for you once to die, and after that comes judgment. And maybe there's some of you here, some of you listening to this, and, and you know that God has been calling you, God is drawing you to himself, but you're dragging your feet, you're resisting, you're kind of holding off. And you say, maybe one day, but not, not today. Someday I'll surrender to God, but not yet. I want you to understand how serious this is making it, that once you die... There's no second chance. There's no way to change your status. So I want to encourage you, don't wait. If you haven't yet done that, if you haven't put down your yes, make sure that today is the day you put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you. He took the judgment so that you could be forgiven completely. Secondly, the reason this changes everything is because it means that you can receive an inheritance. So this brings us back to where the, this section starts in verse 15, 16, and 17. And what he says there, he talks about how the way Jesus' death works is kind of like, works for us. It's kind of like uh, how a will works. So meaning a will as in a last will and testament, that document that determines who gets your stuff when you die. And he points out that a will only comes into effect once the person has died. And in the same way, Jesus had to die in order for us to receive his riches. See, the inheritance which he gives us is his status, his standing before God. And that is credited to your account. It's something that you receive like an inheritance. So an inheritance, think about that. You don't work for an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. It's something that is given to you as an act of benevolence. And the only way you get it is if another person dies. You know, you can imagine that person who's poor and broke and just scraping by, barely making it, but one of their relatives dies and then instantly they become wealthy because they've inherited someone else's wealth. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. It was just given to them because someone else died. And that is a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. We were bankrupt spiritually. We had a debt before God that we could not pay. And God looked upon your desperate situation. He saw what you, where you were at. And here's what he did. He wrote you into his will. And then he came to earth and he died so that you, what he has, might become yours. And not only does it pay off your debt, but it abundantly is more than you could even ask or imagine. Right standing with God, the Holy Spirit, to guide you and to transform you. Eternal life with Him. What Jesus' death means for you is an incredible inheritance. And then finally, this changes everything because it means that you can have a new destiny. It means that you can have a new destiny. Notice the last verse of chapter 20, or of this chapter 9, verse 28. It says that Jesus will come again one day. And when he does, it will not be to make atonement for sin because he already did that. 
It's done. When he comes again, it will be to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Now, I love that description. That's a description of what it means to be a Christian, by the way. To be a Christian is to be a person who is eagerly looking forward to the coming of Jesus. You know, one of the mantras, one of the slogans that the early Christians used was this phrase, this Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. And what it means is, Come, Lord, come, Lord. And what it meant, it expressed this desire. Lord, come quickly, come soon. We want you to come back soon. We look forward to your coming. See, the Bible teaches us that Jesus will indeed return one day to judge the world and to save those who are his. And so one of the litmus tests that the Bible gives us to ask ourselves to see where we're at with God is for us to ask ourselves this question. Does the prospect of standing before God one day does that fill, fill you with fear and anxiety or does that fill you with joy and expectation? If you have put your faith in Jesus and embraced him as Savior, then that means that he has taken your judgment. He stood before God on your behalf and you have received an inheritance in him with the saints. And so for you, the prospect of standing before God is not something that should fill you with anxiety or fear, but it should be glorious and joyful, something that you look forward to. If, on the other hand, you're a person who says, you know, I don't know. I, I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of anxious to stand before God. I don't know if I've been good enough, you might say. I don't know if I've done enough. Let me tell you that that response is a great sign that you have not yet trusted in Jesus for your salvation, that you're still looking to other things, other ways to deal with your sin and find salvation, and they won't work. You see, to be a Christian means to have a new status before God, a status which changes your destiny forever. I'll just finish with this. This is a true story. Uh, it, was made in, it was in a book called uh, On the River Kwai, and then it was made into a movie called To End All Wars. And it's a true story about some American soldiers who were in World War II, and they became um, prisoners of war in Southeast Asia. And so they were put in this POW camp, and then they were in this camp, and during the day, they were forced to work, and they were building a road. So they were forced to work every day, and so at the end of one of their days of work, the guards gathered up all the shovels, and they counted the shovels, and what they found was that one of the shovels was missing. Now, that's a pretty big deal if a shovel's missing because somebody, you know, one of the prisoners might be able to use that shovel to escape. And so the guard began yelling at the prisoners and demanding that they tell him, where is the missing shovel? And the shovel, you know, they, they wanted to know where's it at. And so the guard said, no, no one was re responding. And so the guard lined up all the prisoners in a line. And he told them, okay, you're going to tell me where this shovel is or else I'm just going to go down the line. And one at a time, I'm going to shoot somebody in the head until somebody steps forward and tells me who took the shovel and where it's at. So this guard, he took his gun and he he went to the first guy in line and he pointed the gun at this man's head and he said, where's the shovel? Somebody better tell me right now. And so one of the other prisoners stepped forward from a different part of the line and he said, I did it. I took the shovel. And so the guard went over to him and demanded to know, where did you hide the shovel? Where did you put it? And the man refused to say anything. And so the guard started hitting him and start, finally started kicking him on the ground. And finally, he shot him and killed him. And later that day, they recounted the shovels and they realized that none of the shovels were actually missing. They had just counted them wrong the first time. They had miscounted. They had missed one. But that man had given his life to save his friends. That man knew that he was innocent. The other people knew that he was innocent. But that man also knew that if he didn't step forward and say something, that they were all going to die. And so he gave his life so that they could live. And I just want you to imagine being one of those men. Being one of those men who knew that the only reason you were alive is because someone else 
had given their life so that you could live. Wouldn't that change you? Even just hearing that, doesn't that change you? Doesn't that make you want to live a different life? Want to live better and be less selfish? But think about how much that would change you and make you want to live differently. If you were one of those men knowing that, that there's no way that you could go on living the way that you had been, had been living before, knowing that this incredible price had been paid in order to buy you some time so that you could live. I want you to know that that same thing has indeed happened for you in Jesus. An incredible price has been paid for you so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be right with God, so that you can face the future with hope and confidence instead of fear. And let me ask you this, how then will you live differently now because of that? Paul the Apostle said this, he said, the love of Christ controls us because we know that he died for all and therefore that, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. What he's saying is this. When you begin to really grasp the depth of God's love for you, when you understand the extent of what he's done for you, it changes the entire trajectory of your life. You can't go on living the same way. You can't go on living for yourself. Rather, you have to become a person on a mission, a person living for the purpose for which you were redeemed. And that purpose is something bigger than yourself. I hope you know that. That purpose is to do God's work in the world for his glory and for the good of people so that they might experience that same joy that you have found in him. So may we not only know these things and believe them in theory, but may, they, may these truths affect our lives practically as we go from here today. Right now we're going to transition into a time of communion. And the reason I want to do it here at the end of service is because we've just considered the blood of Jesus poured out for us and what it means for us. And so I want you to consider that as we take communion today. Have that fresh in your mind and respond to that. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.